0: two loving parents who loved me, they just didn't love each other so much. Through that process, I was very young, it just kind of created a void in me. And um, that void, as I grew older, I tried to fill with lots of different things, and um, one of those was affection from men. So I was a freshman, and um, I was hanging out with seniors. Uh, and. Went to a party and people were doing drugs and drinking, and I was involved in all that. And um, there was a point where uh, one of the senior guys took me to his truck, proceeded to um, basically just rape me, and I couldn't. I couldn't get him to stop. And then when um, after the event, he then just left me there on the the bumper of his truck. I can't believe that just happened. I'm 14 years old. And then thinking, okay, I can't tell anybody this because everybody's gonna think it's my fault. You know, in these relationships, I kind of felt like, okay, they would give me affection because they would be attracted to me. Um, And then I was always left empty. I became pregnant at 16. And I didn't know how to tell my parents, um, of course they were divorced, and so the minute my parents knew, they took me down to have an abortion. It was just swept under the rug. I took a couple days off from school, went back to school, didn't tell anybody. When I was 21, there was somebody that I knew moved in with him because it was just economical, but it wasn't, it wasn't an intimate relationship, it was just we were friends. At least that's what I thought. He was physically abusive. He was just mentally, verbally, and then he raped me. When he raped me, I got pregnant. My stepdad drove um, 24 hours straight to come rescue me in the middle of the night because this guy wouldn't, I mean, he just wouldn't let go of me. And so when I got home, I thought that I don't want anything to do with this guy at all, and so I had one of my friends take me down and I had another abortion. I met somebody and a week later um, he said, hey, I'm moving and do you want to come with me? And I said, sure. I became pregnant again. This time I was really excited and I had sonogram pictures and I was showing everybody at work and I was really excited and it came to the point where he said that um, we can't do this and if you, you either need to choose the baby or choose me. So I chose him. And then he left anyway. Um, A couple months later he just left while I was at work. I finished school and then um, bought my house here and got a couple flyers for Southbridge Fellowship and so I decided to go check it out. I was getting myself all worked up, thinking, oh my gosh, And what am I going to wear? What are people going to think? And it started tying back into just the, the feeling of unworthiness that um, I'm not good enough to go to church because of all the things that I've done. And um, But I decided I was going to go. About six months in, the Lord, the Holy Spirit just really t- started to work on me, and um, I would leave in tears every day, you know, every Sunday, and thinking, "Wow, I don't know what's going on," but everything He says, like it's like He's talking just to me. And um, one day there was somebody up there speaking about um, post-abortive uh, studies for women, and just that there is help and healing through God, and. I kind of walked out of the lobby thinking, okay, I just need to get away. And there was a table outside and there was nobody around. I looked around, and there was, but there was somebody standing at the table. So I just walked up like I was just gonna see what it was. And she, the person standing there, asked me, do, do you have something to talk about? And then that's when I told her that I've had three abortions and, um, And I had never, ever said that out loud to anybody before. And then I started a Bible study at Gateway Crisis Pregnancy Center, and it was called Forgiven and Set Free. And it was at that point of completing that and through that process that I actually realized, God really did forgive me. I mean, He died for my sins, no matter how awful they were, and that I was worth loving because I was a daughter of the King and um, it wasn't until that point that I actually accepted His forgiveness. He loves even me. That's where my worth is found now, Um, not in what other people think about me. When When He saved me, He washed me clean. His grace is bigger and better than anything I can ever even imagine.
1: Thank you, Michelle, for sharing your story and uh, vulnerability and uh, not being afraid of what we think and uh, we love you and and want to demonstrate grace as well and so thank you for those of you who have shared your story through this series and it's been impactful to me just to hear different people's journeys and how God's used different things, sometimes terrible things um, sometimes great things to bring us to him and so he's ultimately the one who gets the glory for the stories and regardless of whether he uses other people, whether he uses circumstances what he does it's really we all repackage his story um, with all of our history wrapped around it. and So we're going to just pray to God, ask him to speak to us as we open up his word, and uh, just show us how God's grace and God's love unite these things together. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just uh, come before you with uh, with each one that's here today, and God, we come before you, and I pray for those that may identify with Michelle's story. And they came here today feeling like they weren't worthy to come to church, or feeling like you wouldn't accept them or that we would think stuff about them. God, I pray you'd remove any of those barriers and God, that you would just speak your love to them today, right now. And God, I pray for those that have been here many times before that you would, in a fresh way, in a new way, speak about your love to them today. And I pray for, God, each one of us that come to your word, that you'd change us in whatever way necessary. We thank you for everything that's happened in our lives to bring us to this point where you have us that we would take the next step that you want us to take today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. One of the things I've loved about this series is seeing so many different stories, and you may remember we started six weeks ago, and if you were here six weeks ago, you heard John and Monica Reeves' story, and what you saw was God's grace through their story. There were uh, two young people that lost their spouses tragically, separate from one another, and then God brought them together, and you saw they lost the one that they loved, and the one that loved them guided them through the process, and you saw God's grace and God's love united in that story. You saw failure. The next week we talked about failure. We talked about disappointment. We talked about somebody that was looking for God to do one thing and prepared that way with their lives, and then felt like God let them down, but then God showed them by His grace that He was lovingly guiding them to a better plan. You saw somebody that took off on their spouse, and they were running, and then God, by His grace, had someone that loved them tell the truth. And you maybe remember Melly, Melanie, from two weeks ago, her nickname's Smelly, saying how she thought her brother when he did that was a jerk, and he was judgmental. But it was God's grace that he would share the truth. And then when her life was falling apart because she didn't listen, he was the one that was there to wrap his arms around her and be there for her. You just saw somebody last week that was being treated like no one loved him, but God loved them and was guiding them through this process. You see God's grace and God's love united together. And all these stories, it's like they go hand in hand, they're so intimately tied together grace and love. And the message I have for you today is a very simple message. In fact, it's probably the simplest message I've ever preached at Southbridge, and it's this, God loves you. God loves you. See, there's a problem with me just saying those words. What does that even mean? We're so confused about love, it's become so romanticized, so commercialized, so twisted and turned in its definition. What do you hear when I say God loves you? And I don't know what your answer is, but I'm going to tell you, it's probably different than the person next to you. As I say that to hundreds of people this morning, you'll have hundreds of different things that you will hear. Some people, it's just a cold fact. Yeah, God loves me. I know that. Tell me something different. Uh, For some of you, you may think, but not me. Because that might apply to all the people around me, but not me, and for whatever reason. And other people, you you hear that, and what does that even mean to you? The definition is so twisted and so messed up, and we live in a culture, and a society, and as individuals, we're so twisted on what love means. We're confused about love. And perhaps no time in our society is this better illustrated and demonstrated than in a couple days. Do you know what Tuesday is, anyone? Valentine's Day, I heard a man's voice yell out. Thank you, Jim. Uh, That is good. So men, here's the deal. Even if you don't take notes normally, write this down. Tuesday is Valentine's Day. Ask someone on a date. (laughs) Don't say I didn't do anything for you. Okay, all righty. We haven't even gotten into the message. We got Something good going here. But what happens on Valentine's Day is this. It illustrates to us how confused we are as a culture about what love actually is. And and you can watch commercials and see this. You can watch movies and see this. But I'm going to challenge you. Just go to the store, whether it's, you know, Harris Teeter or Lowe's or whatever it is, pharmacy, wherever you go, and uh, buy a card too. I'm not saying steal a bunch of information from them, but read a bunch of the cards while you're there. And what you'll see are a bunch of twisted definitions of love, ways to love, lots of poetic things about love, and all these things. And then ask yourself, now do I understand love? (laughs) I've got a few that I'd like to share with you today. I didn't make these up, by the way, but just to illustrate some Valentine's Day sayings that you may find in a a card if you were to go to the store and look at these things, and they'll say stuff, and a lot of times it's poetic, they'll say things like this, you come to love not by finding the perfect person, oh no, but by seeing an imperfect person perfectly. What? What? What did that say, actually? What are you talking about? And you'd read it a couple times, chew on that, ponder that, it's almost proverbial here. If someone gave me this card, I think what they're saying is, you're messed up. (laughs) That's the love, that's the card? Or or some people will tell you how to love, and they'll say things like this. There isn't any formula or method. You learn to love by loving. Oh, that's kind of nice. Thanks for sending five bucks, so that and try it. What in the world was that? Does this apply to other areas of life, by the way? It sounds kind of like Nike, like, just do it. Just do what? Just love. Oh, I don't know what love is. Just fly by flying. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) That'll work out real well. You know, just swim by swimming. Throw someone in the pool. (laughs) I wonder if so many people get hurt by love. What is it? You just do it, you know? Just go out there. Some cards, they define love, but they use double talk. So they'll say things like this. Love is an interesting desire, or an irresistible desire, to be irresistibly desired. That sounds good, that'll work on a card, right? It sounds like they're telling you that you're self-centered though. I think this is actually for conceited people. <laughs> love is an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. I want everyone to desire me, <laughs> it's just strange. Some people try and make love sound very intelligent and they'll uh, cite it like people like, they said Albert Einstein said this one. Gravitation cannot be held responsible for people falling in love. <laughs> Come on, seriously? like people pay money for this stuff. This is ridiculous. And I didn't know Albert at all, but I'm pretty sure he was smarter than to be someone that would write a statement like this. Gravitation cannot be held responsible. That's just corny, okay? We're confused about what this is. This idea of love. Now, if we go to the scriptures, we actually see that God says that he is love. So in his essence and in his character, he is love. And so how would he define love? Well, 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, he says a definition, it's very clear. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And how do we know? And he sent his son as an atoning. That's he paid for our sins. It's in place of us, a reconciling sacrifice for our sins. So this is love. And he talks about how God loves us, not about our love for him, but this is love in this gift that he gave. Now, God, who is love in his essence and in his character, also in his essence and his character is a gift giver. That's part of who he is. And it's interesting when you look at the scriptures that when he describes love, he talks about giving gifts. See, James talks about that every good gift we have, everything that's good in our lives has actually come from God. Every good and perfect gift. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. He uses a very il- interesting illustration, somewhat comical. He says that you, if your son asks for a piece of bread, you don't give him a rock. <laughs> if he wants a gift, you don't give him a snake. You, just, you don't do that. Everyone as a parent knows better than that. And you're not perfect. In fact, he says that you're evil he says, and you being evil, know how to give your kids good gifts. How much more does your perfect heavenly father know how to give good gifts? He is a giver by his essence. He is love by his essence. And so what does he give, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. That's every person who was ever created throughout human history. That's not just a ball of dirt that's floating through space. That's people that he's talking about here. For God so loved every person, that means you, that he gave his son Jesus Christ. That's the best he had to give. He gave his best for you because that's what was best for you. But not everyone gets it. Notice the verse says, He who believes would have eternal life. He who has the son is the one who has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. First John. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this about love. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were, as Michelle said, unworthy, while we were still sinners... Well, we were living apart from him. Christ, his son, that atoning sacrifice, it's another way to say it, died for us. That's love. And that love is for you. God loves you. But not all of us get God's love. And so the question for us today is going to be, do you? If you have your Bible, it's going to be Luke chapter 23. I invite you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 23. And as we're looking at Luke chapter 23, you may remember we were here a couple weeks ago in this passage of scripture. We're going to go a little bit further today that we didn't get to two weeks ago, but you may remember this was an incredibly intense scene. It's the scene of the cross, the ultimate picture of God's love, the gift of grace given to us. It's a gift of love. And this gift of grace is wrapped in the cross demonstrated through God's Son because God's Son is love. And you may remember what's happened in God's Son's life up to this point. He's been out in the garden. He's had such mental anguish that he's sweat like tears of blood, like drops of blood. And then after that, he's betrayed by a friend, then denied by another friend, then found innocent by Pilate, then found innocent by Herod, then found innocent a couple more times by Pilate, but then still gruesomely crucified. And remember how gruesome and awful the picture of the cross is. But the worst part wasn't that. He became sin for us. He became a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God at that moment. That's the work of Christ on the cross. And we talked about the work of Jesus and the words of Jesus. And remember the first words that he says from the cross. Luke records for us in verse 34. says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing we talked about forgiveness in our lives. We talked about forgiving other people as we're to forgive just as Christ forgave us. And hopefully you've applied that message. And today we're not going to talk so much about the work and the words that Jesus spoke. We want to look at the cross from a different perspective. Remember when he was there, he wasn't by himself. There were two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And I want you to try and imagine what it was like to be one of those criminals that day to see Jesus die on the cross. Look at it with me. We'll start reading in verse 32, which we covered last time. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, Calvary, same place, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's a written notice above him, a sign, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insult at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. We didn't read this last time, but... Verse 40, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. What we have here is the ultimate picture of love. God loving this criminal, God loving all those people, God saying forgiveness for each one of us, but what we have here is no mistake, there's no accident in this text, in fact every detail here is very intentional, and what we see, you can read the book of Acts, in the book of Acts they talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, that it was predestined, it was pre-planned, this was God's plan from the beginning, even before the fall Before any of that stuff, it was God's plan that his son would die on the cross for our sins. You say, well, yeah, but it's easy to say that in the book of Acts because Jesus already died at that point. Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis, that's the book of beginnings, the very first book. And the book of beginnings at the beginning of the book of the beginnings. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we see the first prophecy about the cross. And we see that there'll be a battle between Satan and the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And what we know is that everything that's happened here at this moment, at this time, is very intentional because God's love is intentional. See, God's love for you, for the world, for each of us is very intentional, incredibly intentional, in fact. And that's one of the things that I have a problem with that will happen in a couple days, is that we get this idea that love is so random. Uh, We talk about falling into it or falling out of it. Listen, you don't fall into and fall out of love. You fall into a pit, okay? You fall downstairs, and there's usually a lawsuit involved in the deal. It's an accident, that takes place. Love is not an accident. Love, true biblical, real love, is very intentional. And if you don't think that we think that love is random, just think about this concept that's been created to try and describe how people fall in love called Cupid. <laughs> now, maybe you believe Cupid is real. Coo-coo. Oh, but that's okay. If that's your belief. But think about Cupid. If you don't know who he is, let me just tell you who Cupid is. Cupid is this little baby angel thing that flies around, wears a diaper, carries a bow and arrow, apparently shoots people randomly and decides who your future spouse will be. So this is how Cupid actually works. What a stupid concept, okay? (laughs) Cupid is stupid. There's a little point for you as well, sub-point in the message. (laughs) Let me tell you how poorly thought through Cupid is. First of all, he's supposed to make one of the most important decisions of your life, who you're going to fall in love with, right? Who you're going to bury, how that's all going to work out. He hasn't even been potty trained, He's still wearing a diaper. I mean, as my kids would say, he can't even go pee-pee on the potty, and he's supposed to pick your love mate forever. And not only that, but you think about him, he's flying around. Do you ever see him with anyone else? This is a love doctor, right? He's the matchmaker. Why is he always by himself? Maybe it's hard to find another little baby in a diaper that's packing heat. I don't know. (laughs) But what a stupid concept of Cupid. Now, I don't really have an issue against this little cartoon character. You know my issue is against is this concept that love is just random. It's something that happens to you and you can't control it. You kind of fall into it or you fall out of it and maybe you think that's happened to you before. Let me tell you something. True biblical love is very intentional. I'm not saying it's void of emotions. I'm not saying that it doesn't have feelings. But real biblical love, true love, is incredibly intentional and what we see is the ultimate picture of love and Jesus going to the cross. And every little detail that happened at the cross, including the criminals and specifically who those people were by name, was intentional and planned out by God. You see, what happens here is Jesus goes to the cross, and sometimes we forget these criminals are there. God wasn't up in heaven looking down, going, Man, I had this thing planned out. Jesus was going to get the whole deal. And then they got these other like, co actors here. What is this? This wasn't a mistake. This has been planned out. In fact, we see in the scripture hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. And the prophet Isaiah, and don't put up Isaiah 53, 12 yet, but in Isaiah chapter 53, what you can end up seeing is a passage all about the suffering servant. It's prophecy about Jesus' life. And you read it to get to know your Savior better. It's an amazing passage of scripture. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, it says this, that this servant will be crushed. Think about that for a second. This is God talking about his son. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, it says this, and it'll be on the screen. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. It was planned hundreds of years before that these criminals would be there. In fact, in the chapter right before this happens, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 37, it shows how aware Jesus was of the things that were happening. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 37, he cites this prophecy and says it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. It's not a mistake that these criminals are there. In fact, none of the things that happen at the cross are coincidental or happenstance or just chance. They're all very intentional. And you see them prophesied through the scripture. The fact that they're mocking him, remember I read all those mocking statements, whether it was the soldiers or the leaders or the crowd, whoever's mocking him, it's written about in Psalm chapter 22. Read Psalm 22 on your own. It talks about how they'll, they'll mock him. It talks about how they'll divide up his clothes and they'll gamble over his clothes. It's what's happening underneath the foot of the cross at this very moment. Well, these criminals and Jesus hang there. All these things are very intentional. In fact, in Psalm 22, the very first verse, talks about how Jesus will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's all planned out. It's all very intentional because God's love is incredibly intentional. Now that's hard to grasp when you think about what's actually happening here and that this is his son, his child, his boy. And you know how gruesome the cross is. We've talked about it. You know what? The nails in his hands. You know about the beating that he took before this. You know that most people die of exhaustion. They die of suffocation, oftentimes, dehydration. And I've told you before that many men went insane when they dropped the cross into the hole that it would sit in. And it was his plan that that would happen to his son. But remember, that's not the worst part. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Thousands of people experienced that physical pain. The worst part, and it was actually written in the book of Deuteronomy, that anyone who dies on a tree is cursed. The worst part is that Jesus Christ became a curse. He would have his own son become a curse. Do you know why? Because he's an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the propitiation that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was all part of God's plan. This isn't accidental. It's very intentional that he would take upon the weight of all sin. That's the hard part. Every murder that was ever committed on him. Every rape that was ever committed that was on him. Every abortion that ever took place that was on him. Every lie. It's on him. Everybody who goes to a pornographic website, you know how often that happens? Since I paused, it's all on him. He took it all. Every sin up until two weeks ago when we looked at the cross, and every sin in the last two weeks, and every sin until he comes back, it's all on him. All of that's on him. And that was God's plan. It was very intentional. Can you imagine what it was like to be that man on the cross next to him? Or one on his right, one on his left. And I don't know which one, the right or the left, but just say the one on, on the right. As he looked, and he saw something different here. His heart was transformed. His heart was changed. But well, what's his story? Can you imagine to be that guy? Well, what was his story? If we've learned anything from this series, it's that everybody has a story. This isn't just some guy that shows up in Luke chapter 23 as a crucified criminal. He's an actual person, a historical figure. It's a historical fact that he was there. Whether you place your faith in Jesus or not, you can't deny the historical fact that Jesus died on the cross, there were two criminals that were there with him. So who is this guy? And what's his story? And how does he end up on a cross? Because he says that he deserves to be there in this passage. So did he start off as a kid, maybe in petty crime, and it just progressed and got worse and worse? Maybe he was a curious kid growing up. And I don't know what that's like. That's what I was like. And maybe this is what he can get away with and Stephen get away with a little bit more. And then eventually he got caught. Or maybe his story was like some other people's story where he was a good kid, just started hanging out with the wrong people. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong times. Like every time they got caught, he was there. Maybe he had good parents and he rebelled against them. Or maybe he had parents that pretended like they were really into the religion thing, but it didn't ever change their life. And so he didn't want to, what are you going to commit your life to something that's not real? And so he walked away from that. I don't know what his story is, but I do know this. We all Have one. This guy had a story. And you all have a story. In fact, you might remember the first week that we did this series, about six weeks ago, we asked you all to share your story with us as a church, your grace stories. And uh, many of you gave us permission to be able to share those stories. And in the time of a series, just in six weeks, we can't share every story. And what we've done is we've created this banner here that we'll put up out in the lobby for the next couple months. We've captured a bunch of the stories on here. And many of you are very transparent in what you shared. And some of you over the next couple of months, maybe out in the lobby even, will take some time and read some of these and just spend some time worshiping God through what he's done. But you see stories like, like this one it says, Abused and rejected as a child. So I walked away from God. But then God's forgiveness and grace transformed me. I wonder if that was the guy's story that was on the cross here. Maybe he was abused and neglected as a child and so he walked away from God and as walking away from God, he made some very poor decisions and ended up putting him on this cross and he wouldn't see God's grace that transforms him until he's on the cross next to Jesus. We look at some of these other stories, there's this one down here is a pretty detailed one. Sexually abused by father, emotionally and verbally abused by mother. I knew about God but believed he forgot about me or, or didn't care. And these are all stories of people from our church. We didn't put the names on them, but they're all stories of people that you're sitting next to today. Maybe this guy on the cross, the story was the same. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe he was sexually abused, maybe he was verbally abused, emotionally abused, didn't think that God cared because of what was happening in his life. Or and it goes on. This story goes on. It says that I lived an independent life until two thousand nine. I lost my job and I lost independence. I was drowning in panic and fright, and God got my attention. Maybe this guy lived a life he really thought he was independent. What a myth. And now here he is on the cross. Many people died of suffocation. He's grasping for his last breaths. And maybe he's realizing just how dependent he is on God. And he looks over and sees Jesus and thinks, is he? Or You got other simple stories on here. Uh, Addicted to alcohol, God's grace set me free. Maybe he was an addict. And if you know addicts, you know that they'll, they'll make some crazy decisions they wouldn't make in their normal thinking. And they'll try to make other people around them think that they're crazy. And maybe he just did some dumb things and ended up putting them on the cross. Lying, cheating, stealing, hurting others. And now he's on the cross. This is the... This guy was addicted, then God's grace set him free, and he realized God's grace when he looked at Jesus next to him. Or you come over here, maybe he experienced loss when he was young. You got lots of people experience experienced loss coming through. You got a suicide. You got somebody whose brother was shot and killed, and the guy got their attention. Experiences present at my father's wake. And you see all these different stories on here. There's a the person here that says, I had a lot of questions, and no one had answers that gave me peace. And maybe he was just one of those kids that grew up questioning stuff and didn't like the trite answers, didn't like the PR lines that the church gave. And so he turned away. And this person says "Here is that they went to the Bible study, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, spoke to my heart. Could God, we could not earn salvation. It was a gift of grace, and I received his gift. And maybe as this guy looked over at Jesus, that's what melted his heart as he saw the truth, the living word. John 1 says that he is the word. The beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word's Jesus. I don't know what his story is, and I don't know all of your stories. I know a lot of stories, but I don't know all of your stories. What was the story of that man that was on the cross that day next to Jesus? And trying to imagine what it was like to look at Jesus and for God's grace to really grip his heart. I've told you before some of my story. Last week I was able to go to a conference center, a retreat center, and I was doing some stuff, checking some things out for the church and really talking to the Lord about my story. And God struck me with this verse. The verse was, uh, I learned it in this series, it really stuck out to me when I was preaching on Saul from Acts chapter 9. If you don't know Saul, he's got a crazy story. He calls himself actually and God puts us in his word the worst sinner ever. And he was guilty of being part of murders of Christians and as for being zealous against Christianity he hated Christianity and God by his grace gripped his heart transformed his life became the greatest missionary ever in Christianity. And I was alone with the Lord at this retreat center out in Chapel Hill and we were talking about stuff and talking about things that were a part of my story and talking to about my parents talking to about things that had happened talking about things that I had done. And finally, just in candidness, and I wasn't saying all this out loud. I don't know how you talk to the Lord, but I was kind of from my heart speaking to him, and he was speaking back to my heart. Saying, where were you? Like, where were you before the Jesus moment? Like, when I was 18, when I trusted Jesus. Where were you before that? Why did you let this stuff happen? Why did you let me do this stuff? Where, Where were you at? And it reminded me of a verse that Saul writes And Saul writes in Galatians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, he talks about how we knew of his former way of life, what he was like before he came to Jesus. But then in verse 15, he says this, but when God, who set me apart from birth, and that's the part that got me, so he was set apart even before the Jesus stuff. God had a plan for him before that. When God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He had a plan that he was preparing him for through the whole process, even through the difficult stuff, even when he was killing people. God had a plan for him. He set me apart from birth because God's love is very intentional through all the junk and in all the good stuff. His love is very incredibly intentional. And not only is his love incredibly intentional, his love is for everyone. That's our second point. God's love is for everyone everyone if this guy on the cross doesn't teach us anything else the simplest truth that he could possibly teach us is that if god can love this guy god can love anyone because this guy you don't get crucified for just being a petty thief you can get crucified for robbing you can get crucified for being a thief but not for like just petty you know stealing a pack of gum from the grocery store type thief he's this guy's the worst of the worst this guy's the vilest of the vile criminal in fact, i read a lot of stuff about these guys. There's a lot of things we don't know about these two criminals on the cross. And people speculate, and it's not historical. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there about whether they were Hindus and all kinds of stuff. I don't know, agendas going on, the writing of this stuff. But there's some things that we do know about them. One thing that we know about them is they got incredibly hard hearts. In fact, they were mocking Jesus too. Not just one of them. But if you read Mark and Matthew, those are some documents to go to. Mark and Matthew talk about the crucifixion of Jesus as well. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, we see there are two robbers here, right? Notice this is plural. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. And that's in the imperative, in the original language. That means that was happening over and over again. This wasn't one statement to Jesus. This is repeatedly, over and over again. You saved others, then why don't you save yourself? They're mocking him, that he claims to be the Christ, and he's powerless, he appears helpless. There's a hard heart here. The word for robbers that's used here. It's a word that describes someone who robs openly and uses violence. The way they were described by one guy that I read who describes them as the vilest of the vile and the worst of the worst and having no regard for human life would be these would be the type of guys that would hide in the mountains and wait for a family that was going on a journey together to come by, an innocent family. They'd jump out, they would rob from the family. If necessary, they would murder. They would leave them there to die so the birds could eat their flesh. Exactly what I read. When I read about these guys, it made me think of two guys that I saw on the news. A few months ago, they were being sentenced for their crime. They are actually criminals, got out of jail, had planned while they were in jail to do a bunch of stuff when they got out. And I believe it was in Connecticut is where it happened. And they went into this home, uh, held this family hostage, did unspeakable stuff. Tied the father up in the basement, planned on letting him die when the house burned down, I think it was. And he escaped, he got out, and so these guys got caught. One of the criminals actually said, if I remember correctly... That he wanted the death penalty because he didn't want to live with the things that he saw happen. This guy says on the cross, we deserve to die. He knows what he's done. These guys are the worst of the worst. See, when I saw that on the news, I thought, that guy should die. And this guy's saying about himself, I should die. He knows what he deserves. He knows what he's like, and God loves him. If God loves him, you don't think God can love you? This guy is the worst of the worst, but somehow his heart melts. So what happens for him is he's hanging there on the cross. We'll say to the right of Jesus. And he looks over and he sees Jesus. And so that he sees the sign above his head. He says, this is the king of the Jews that gets his attention. Or is it while the mocking is going on, maybe from his own lips, he realizes that what's actually being mocked is the gospel. That from the lips of non-believers, he hears the gospel. You saved others. Hey, wait a minute, that's true. He did save others. And maybe this guy on the cross thought to himself about the kind of people that Jesus saved. Maybe he thought to himself about the people that Jesus spent time with. Remember, Jesus prophesied in the book of Luke about his own ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when he's quoting from Isaiah 61, he says, I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor, not just to the poor financially, but the poor in spirit that are hopeless and helpless like this guy. Not only to the poor, but he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Most people believe, many commentators believe, that these guys were actually partners with Barabbas, the guy who Jesus is on Barabbas' cross. He was literally set free. And Jesus died in his place. He set the prisoners free to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and give sight to the blind and release the oppressed and declare the year of the Lord's jubilee. The year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, is when debts are canceled and slaves are set free. So it's everybody that has big debt and everybody that's held captive. And who does Jesus minister to? He goes out and he touches blind eyes. And remember, that's not just a handicap in that day. People believe, not accurately, but they believe that the reason why you are blind is because of your sin. And so Jesus is going to people that no one else goes to, like lepers. And prostitutes, like we read about in Luke chapter 7. Remember, those who are forgiven much will love much. Or John chapter 8, the woman who's caught in adultery, you cast the first stone, and he tells the woman, you go and live a different life now. God's grace. She's about to die. Can you imagine what she would have written on the thing here? God's grace. These are the people that Jesus comes into contact with. A tax collector, they're fundraisers for terrorists. That's what a tax collector is. And he calls one of his closest friends to come and be his follower. He says to Matthew, a guy who wrote a gospel that we've quoted from today, You come follow me. So maybe the thief on the cross thinks he really did save other people and I think about who those other people are. Maybe he could save me. Or or maybe it wasn't that moment. Maybe his heart was so hard that he didn't even get him there. Maybe it was when he heard Jesus pray in verse 34. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. They have no idea what's taking place here. They know how to crucify someone. They have no idea that the weight of the sin of the world is coming on one man See, Jesus wasn't just an innocent man. Many innocent men die. But the weight of the sin of the world is coming on him so he can be an atoning sacrifice for you. So he can die in your place. And maybe as he heard those words, the guy on the cross thought to himself, you're going to forgive the guy who just nailed you to the cross, who put the nail up to your hand, but not only up to your hand, up to mine. Think about how personal this was for the thief on the cross. You're forgiving the people that are gambling over your clothes. You're forgiving everyone that's sinned throughout all of humanity. You're asking for forgiveness for them. Maybe it applies to me. Maybe at that moment, his heart melted. And he realized God's love is for everyone. Let me tell you the message today. God loves you. All of you. And I know a lot of stories. I don't know all of your stories. I don't know everything that you've done. And I'm sure it's not all up on here. And I don't know everything that's been done to you. But I know this. God loves you. And you might think to yourself, no, not me. applies to the people around me, but not me. Maybe no one else does love you, but God does. God loves you. Because God's love is for everyone. That's great news. But there's also terrible news. Not everyone gets God's love. Well, God's love is for everyone. Not everyone gets it. And by gets it, I don't just mean mentally understands it. See, even the devil understands it. And by gets it, I don't just mean experiences it, but I mean truly embraces it to the point where they have the Son. Because the Son is love. And that's how love is demonstrated, that God gave his Son. But it's for everyone, not everyone gets it. And this passage shows us that. Because remember, there's two guys on the cross next to Jesus. There's one on the right, and there's another on the left. What's his story? It's probably very similar to the other guy's story. He's seen the exact same stuff the other guy saw. He had to carry his cross. When Jesus wasn't able to and had to have somebody else come, Simon of Cyrene, carry the cross, he was probably right behind Jesus. He heard the words that Jesus spoke to the crowd, warning them not to worry about him, but to worry about themselves and the judgment that would come upon them for rejecting him. He probably heard all those words. He saw the sign above Jesus' head. This is the king of the Jews. He heard everyone say that he was innocent. He heard the mocking voices. He heard Jesus' own lips say, Father, forgive them. And after all of that, verse 39 tells us what he says. And we see his heart here. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insult to him. Aren't you the Christ? Here's a glimpse at his heart. Save yourself and us. Wait a minute. He's asking Jesus to save him. So isn't he a Christian? Isn't this like a measure of faith, some faith at some level? No. Not at all. What this guy's asking for is not for Jesus. What he's asking for is a benefit from Jesus. What he's doing is the very thing that many people do throughout churches all across the country, and they think that they're getting salvation, and what they're getting is deception because they're asking for a benefit of Jesus, but they don't really want Jesus himself. It's like going and saying, I want freedom. I want peace, or I want joy, or I want love, or I want the guilt taken away. I want all those things, and people all the time think they're coming to Jesus, and that's what they're coming after. That's what this guy's asking for. He's saying, save me from my circumstances. Get me down from this cross. If you'll do that, then I'll believe. It's that mentality. That's not faith. He doesn't have the son. You know what the Bible says? If you don't have the son, you don't have life. 1 John, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not. So if you come because you're wanting these benefits from God, and that's your level of faith, let me tell you something. You're not a Christian. That's as bold and clear as I can say it. You don't have Jesus. This guy did not have faith. This is the last we hear from him. And Jesus never speaks to him again. Had his chance. He missed it. And the guy on the other side, he rebukes him. It's like he's pleading with him. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Listen, man, you're about to die. Most people suffocate to death, and you're wasting your last breath talking trash to Jesus. Can you be any more stupid? And he says to him, don't you fear God? A proper attitude towards God and realizing who we are and who he is. And he is different and he is other and he is holy and we are not. He said, since you are under the same sentence, like get some perspective, man. You're mocking him for being on the cross. Look at yourself. You're on the cross. But you deserve to be there. We're getting this stuff justly. He's pleading with this guy. Come on. Just humble yourself and trust Jesus. But he doesn't. The guy doesn't do it. He says, no. The guy's talking smack to Jesus for being on the cross. He's on a cross. Like, think about that. That's like a short guy talking smack to somebody who's taller than him and calling him shorty. What are you doing? But he won't get it. it doesn't, it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. And he rejects Jesus. Why? We don't know his story. We don't know how he would answer that question. Maybe he'd say, I had a bunch of questions. No one ever answered my questions. Until my questions get answered, I'm not going to place my faith in Jesus. Maybe he would say I live my life this way the whole time I do deserve to be on the cross And i'm going to die this way because I don't want to be a hypocrite So what's the real reason? Pride I won't humble myself. I won't fear god I've done it my way. I'll continue to do it my way and he spends eternity separated from god in hell He will pay the consequences for sin. They have to be paid for it's either jesus on the cross or we do for all of eternity They have to get paid for because god is just and the way his justice and his love work together is that he put his son on the cross to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the other guy gets it. And you know he gets it because he repents. And His saying this stuff to this friend. He's demonstrating repentance to us. Look at what he says. We are serving this sentence because of our deeds and what our deeds deserve. Verse 41, he says, we're under the same sentence, verse 40, and then we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. What a confession of sin. Because it's easy for all of us to confess that everybody sins, right? But then to actually say, and we deserve our consequences for our sin. And if you look at this guy, he never asked to be saved from his consequences. He never asked to have the consequences removed. He knows he deserves them. And I don't know what all your sin is. Murder, lying, maybe the worst, you're a phony and pretend like everything's okay with you and God. And it's not. But it doesn't matter. The Bible says that whatever our sin is, the wages, what we deserve for our sin is death. That's separation from God. That's condemnation from God. That's guilt from God. That's depression. That's being haunted by your sin for all of eternity. That's what that is. That's what you deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life. He offers us a gift. The only way you can have the gift is if you receive the gift. It's for everyone, but not everyone gets the gift. The only way you can have the gift is if you ask for it. That's what the guy in this passage does. He says, then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just think about me when someday, when one day you come back and you rule and you reign on this earth, when you come into your kingdom and your kingdom starts, will you remember me? Will you think of me? And then Jesus answers him and he gives him beyond what he could ever ask or imagine. Look at Jesus' answer in light of the question. I tell you the truth, today, not someday, not one day, today, you will be with me in a place that Jesus calls paradise. And what is paradise? It's talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 4. It's talked about in the book of Revelation. Let me tell you very simply what paradise is. It's the place of the righteous. It's the righteous abode, some people will say. It's a place where righteous people go, but who's righteous? No one. The Bible also says that. Oh, so then it's a place for no one? No. The only people that are righteous are the people that get God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, because he was innocent when he died on the cross. He imparts his righteousness upon us. We become, even though our sins were scarlet, white as snow, when we place our faith in Jesus and receive that gift. See, it's for everyone, but not everyone gets it. And if you've got it, then you're seen as righteous, and you get to go to this place called paradise, the place of the righteous. Or there's streets of gold, and and there's no crying, and there's no pain, and there's no cancer, and there's no murder, and there's no rape, and there's no abortion, and there's no adultery, there's no lying, there's no tragedy, there's none of that stuff. But we talk about this place, paradise, that's not what you really get. That's a byproduct of what you really get. Look at the verse. Today you will be with me. What you really get is Jesus. See, the word paradise is actually a Persian word. Very simply, it just means walled garden. It's used to describe the Garden of Eden in the Greek Old Testament. When there's a translation, Old Testament was really originally written in Hebrew. When it's translated into Greek, they use the word that's used here, the Persian word for Eden or for garden, the walled garden. It just describes walled gardens. It's not just specifically for this place called heaven. But what a Persian king would do if he wanted to bestow honor upon a subject in Persia, what he would do is he would allow that that subject to come and be his companion in the garden. And they would walk together in the garden. The gift wasn't just that you got to be in the garden. The gift was that you were a companion with the king. And see, what you get here, it's not so focused on paradise, is that today you'll be with me. Not that I'll just think of you, because that was the request of the thief. Not that you'll just be a thought in my mind, but we will be together. You will be with your king. You will be with your lord. You will be with your master. The gift is Jesus. Because this is love, not that we loved God, First John chapter four, verse 10. but that He loved us. And what did He give us? Not a place to go to. Not peace, not joy, not forgiveness, not freedom, not love, not grace, not all that stuff. That's all great stuff. It's all byproducts of what you actually get, which is Jesus Christ. For God loved us so much that he gave us His Son. He died for us as an atoning sacrifice so that we could have him, he who has the son, has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. See, his love was very intentional in giving us his son. The gift is his son. That is love. That is the gift of grace. And with it comes freedom, and with it comes peace, and with it comes joy, and with it comes guilt, the guilt's removed, with it the condemnation is gone, with it comes forgiveness. That's all true. But you can't have those things without having the son. You have to have the son. And so the question for you is not whether God's love is intentional. It's not whether God's love is for everyone. The question is, do you have it? Do you have the son? And I told you when we started this series that my goal for you, my desire for you, and my prayer for you is that you would have a grace story. That everyone here doesn't have one. Everyone here has a story, but everyone doesn't have a grace story. The only people that have a grace story are people that have embraced that gift, have received the gift that's been given. And so the question is, have you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you that you are love and that you give us love and that you offer to each one of us regardless of our background, regardless of our story, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what's been done to us. Father God, we thank you that from birth you've set us apart and that you have a plan for our lives and we know that that plan means that we're with you. And God, when we're with you, that means that paradise is part of that. And we're so thankful for that. But we don't want to just get caught up in the place. We want to know the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Because we know that he is love. Some of you may remember a couple weeks ago when Melanie, Lindsay, shared her story and she was talking about the most powerful moment in her life. And she, like we have right now, our heads bowed and our eyes closed. She bowed her head, she closed her eyes and I asked people just to ask God to speak to them. And she said what happened was God said to her, I love you. She didn't expect God to speak to her. She just not God to kind of speak generally to us, corporately, to us as a church. But what is God speaking to you right now? What does he want to say to your heart? And for some of you, you need to receive his love. You need to receive his son, Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, you need to trust Jesus Christ as your savior. Would you just raise your hand and acknowledge that that's true? I want to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray with me quietly. And you sit in your seat. Just a moment. Would you just raise your hand? I see some people in the back. You can keep it up. And if you're in Theater 14, if you're listening in your car right now as you drive from a recording, would you just raise your hand, acknowledge to God, I I need to receive your love. I need to receive your son, Jesus Christ. See, this is love that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, that he loved us enough to give his son, Jesus Christ, because he loved the world, because he loves everyone. But not everyone gets it. It's only those who believe that receive eternal life receive the opportunity to be with the king in paradise. If you want to receive that today, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. If you just raise your hand, will you pray this prayer? Like the thief on the cross, just pray, God, I admit my sin. I acknowledge that I've sinned against you and that sin separates me from you. But I believe that your son Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. Not just for sin, but for my sin, my specific sin. It was intentional. And I want to receive your son, Jesus Christ, to be my Savior today. If you just prayed that prayer, the Bible says that if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. God raised him from the dead, that you're saved. that You've received his love That's an incredible decision. I just want to ask you, if you would, please, uh, I don't know what God's going to speak to your heart, but what I'm speaking to you on behalf of our church is if you would fill out your connection card, we want to pray for you. That is such a tender moment in your life. We want to be there for you and with you and pray for you through that situation. And Father God, I pray for each one of us that have received your son, Jesus Christ, but maybe we've got convoluted definitions of what love is or maybe we've gotten sidetracked or distracted by other stuff, God, that you'd hone us in on your son, Jesus Christ that we would know him and that we would want to be with him. And then, God, you would give us the fruit of that, the kindness, the peace, the patience, the joy, the love, the freedom, the forgiveness. I pray you'd give us a greater grasp of your love, how it's patient, and it's not rude, and it's not self-seeking, how it's even greater than faith and hope. And, God, I pray that you would show us what it is to know your son, Jesus Christ, in a deep, intimate, personal way to really get it. I pray that would be true for each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.